Brian Elberg. Give me a name. Jackie Robinson. Welcome to Give Me a Name, where a guest presents me, Ben Kirschenbaum, with a dead historical figure they find interesting, and we discuss. I purposely put this episode right after Proust and Hindemith, because most people that are into early 20th century French literature and German classical music are also big sports junkies. Jack Roosevelt Robinson, the Roosevelt comes from Teddy Roosevelt, yep. was born on January 31st, 1919 in Georgia, although he moved pretty quickly to Pasadena, California yep. as part of the Great Migration, mm-hmm. which is a movement from the early 1900s all the way through sort of the 1960s, 1970s of African-Americans from the South to the West and to the North. Right. He was the son of a sharecropper, the grandson of a slave. His father left the family very early. That's when they moved. Mother worked a lot of odd jobs in order to support Jackie and his brothers and sisters. Jackie was the youngest of five. Yes, the youngest of five. And his older brother was came in second to Jesse Owens in yes. the 1936 Olympics in the 200, which is, I mean... Quite a family. Not only came in second, but broke the record. Right. (laughs) Only to have another guy break the record more and get the silver, uh, and he, and and Robinson getting the silver medal. Yeah. I mean, Hitler was probably really pissed about, he could have been, I don't know, Hitler Hitler was probably pretty pissed about two guys breaking the record. Absolutely. And he could have been, and he could have been Jesse Owens. He could have been Jesse Owens, but instead Jesse Owens was Jesse Owens. That didn't make any sense, but... Instead Jesse... Right. And his brother was Jackie Robinson, who... I guess Jesse Owens and Jackie Robinson, in terms of the most influential 20th century athletes... Yes, certainly. Maybe top two. Certainly up there with Muhammad Ali, which I want to get into, and Michael Jordan, probably. That's probably... And Babe Ruth. You'd probably have to have maybe them as your top five. I think that that sounds right. Billie Jean King, maybe throw in there. Maybe Billie Jean King. Kurt Flood. Coke, yep. Kurt Flood's a, um, what do they call it? It's a deep cut, but Kurt Flood, I totally agree with. Kurt Flood, so we should say, we're also, when we say influential, we're kind of combining how great they were at their sport with the influence that they had on a more social level. Yes, and a positive influence, because if you're going negative, OJ would probably be number one, (laughs) but you would probably not want to be like, well, he's probably the most influential athlete of the 20th century. That's fair. That's a very fair point. Oh, just for the deep cut point, Kurt Flood was a athlete who in the early 1970s was instrumental in having, well, he was a baseball player, in having athletes sort of decide which team to go to. He basically invented free agency. Yes. Is a way it is like a way to think about it. Right. Which is or, or well, we should say attempted to. It right. went to the Supreme Court and he lost. <laughs> right, fair enough. But th- that was the intention. Yeah, it's crazy to think about uh, in relearning about Jackie Robinson, how different sports were, let alone culture that like Jackie Robinson was around when they invented spring training, for example, in baseball. Yes, and we can get into who was the one to create kind of the farm system because Perfect. that also intersects with the Jackie Robinson story. Yes, so, exactly. Jackie Robinson was a huge sports star in high school and then at UCLA. He played baseball, basketball, football, track, and tennis and famously said that baseball was his worst sport. Yeah, people say that knew him at the time that he could be literally the greatest athlete of all time because he was so he was just so prolific in all of these sports and in football, football might have been his best. There's all these Clips of there's are a couple clips of him playing football and just dominating, of course, because he's incredibly fast at running back. And literally, there's stories, and again, we'll get into this more later. But like, you don't know when you're going back to the 30s and 40s what stories are true and what are apocryphal. But there is a story of like he played a game so good that like white fans basically started booing him and calling him racial slurs. And by the end of the game, we're like giving him standing ovations because they were like, this guy's unbelievable. Yeah, if you could, you could watch clips on YouTube yes. of him playing. It reminds me a little bit of Jim Brown, yes. who was also uh, could be on that list. Oh, yes, he could. And it looks like almost like a Babe Ruth kind of thing. It looks like someone from the future <laughs> yes. playing against like people who just don't belong on the field. Yes, but Jim Brown even more so. And there's no clips of this, I don't believe. But Jim Brown even more so in the sport of lacrosse. The best lacrosse player of all time, Jim Brown. I did not know that. Yeah, there's the reason in lacrosse that they, the the sticks, there used to be no limit on how short a lacrosse stick could be. Mm. So Jim Brown had like a really, really, really tiny lacrosse stick. 
and would basically hold it like a football and just run down the field and no one could stop him. And he would just launch it into the net every time. So they literally changed the rules to prevent Jim Brown from being that good. At Those it. are the best athletes, the ones where yeah. they literally have to change the sport in order to account for the fact that you're so good. Totally. It's him and it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in college when they banned dunking in college basketball. <laughs> so uh, just on a personal uh, note for Robinson, he met his, right, his wife, Rachel, when he was a senior in college and they would be married until Robinson's death. Yep. And Rachel Robinson also became a very big sort of spokesperson for the Robinson legacy since Jackie Robinson's death. Yes, which is, and she's still alive. Yeah. Which is yeah, shocking. Yeah. It's shocking that she, I mean, she's 98, still alive, still kicking. Yeah, she was great. And whenever the impression you get from everything you read about Jackie and Rachel is, is it really was like a partnership. She mm-hmm. was really important to his success, especially in those early years with the Dodgers. I mean, he would talk about games and say like, we stole second. And just like, in, that's how he referred to it. And he was referring to me and Rachel. Wow. Yeah. And that's she, a real, that's like when people say, like, when guys say we're pregnant. So Jackie Robinson, after college, is drafted into the Army in 1942 for World War II. Mm-hmm. The Army is still segregated yep. at this point. The Army isn't desegregated until 1948, right. which is, by the way, after Jackie Robinson integrates baseball. Yes. He is eventually assigned to Fort Hood in Texas. And then there's, on July 6, 1944, sort of a famous incident in his life where Robinson is with a fellow officer's wife on a bus. Robinson is told to go to the back of the bus by the driver. Even though the Army wasn't integrated, the rule on buses was that it was desegregated. So he was doing what the rule was. Mm -hmm. Robinson refused. The driver did back down but does call the military police. And for this incident, Robinson was court-martialed and charged with many offenses, including public drunkenness, which he wasn't. Right. And he eventually is found not guilty. But it did prevent him from seeing combat. Eventually, he was honorably discharged from the army. Yeah, so that, I mean, this is one of the main things that I think people don't really appreciate about Jackie Robinson is he's doing this in 1944. Mm. So that's 10 years before Rosa Parks. Yes. That's Fred Hampton's not even born. Martin Luther King is in college, maybe. Brown versus Board of Education, not for a decade. Yeah, exactly. Many years away. And he's, so he's doing, he's, the quote from Martin Luther King, I believe, is he was a sit-in there before sit-ins and a, what is it, a boycotter before boycotts or something. Yes. Something like that. But he's, we think of the civil rights movement and I think Jackie Robinson does sometimes get sort of lumped into that. But he really is many years before all of, before what we think of as the civil rights movement and is in many ways the first in a lot of those categories. But I will say, getting not getting court-martialed and being innocent and then being honorably discharged so that you can go play professional baseball and so you don't have to go fight World War II, it's kind of a, not a bad deal. Sure. <laughs> um, the, other, the other element of this altercation, which I think is important to note, and the, the image that we have of Jackie Robinson is very much as a passive resistor, which, yes. is, which is true, absolutely. Right. But... A lot of recent articles bring up the fact that it wasn't for lack of anger and true, you know, animosity towards what was going on. And apparently he did say to a superior officer after this incident, Captain, if any private, you or any general calls me the N-word, I'll break them in two. So, and we'll talk about why he's eventually selected to be the first person to integrate baseball. It is not because he's not what, what was called a race man. Right. A person who was very, very conscious of the racism and tried his best or, or dedicated his life right. really to trying to advance the position of black people in the country. Right. This is what I really do appreciate about Jackie Robinson so much is he doesn't fit into any particular narrative. You can't put him in a box of, oh, this is how he viewed race. This is how he viewed these particular issues because at different points during his life, he was someone who was a more passive resistor. He was more aggressive because he was more aggressive in, in college and in the army than he was certainly those first couple years playing for Brooklyn. But that's sort of how he is pictured and taught throughout history is how passive he was. Yeah, and so to start with Robinson's baseball career, which happens shortly after he leaves the Army. Right. Um, first, he does play briefly in the Negro Leagues. And just for context, the Negro Leagues were sort of a series of leagues. It wasn't really centralized that well, although at times it kind of was, mm-hmm. to react to the fact that African Americans and to a lesser extent Latin Americans were not allowed in the major leagues. Yes. And they were popular among black audiences, but... 
when Jackie Robinson does integrate baseball and more black players go into the major leagues, it's the death knell to the Negro Leagues. Right. Course. Right. He, he did. He, which a lot of people were upset about at the time. Yeah. I was sort of blamed for ending the Negro Leagues. And the Negro Leagues also had a very different style of play than traditional baseball at the time. There was a lot more. They had a lot more fun. There was a, they played like barnstorming style of baseball, which is the term that's always used. And he, there's a lot more stealing bases. There were a lot more bunts trying to take the extra base, which was very different than how Major League Baseball was played, which was a little bit more sort of what you would call in modern parlance, station-to-station baseball, like not taking the extra base, just base-to-base hitting singles, and that's how it was. But then when Jackie Robinson came to the Major Leagues, he brought in a lot of that style of getting in rundowns and all of those things. In the Negro Leagues, he was more of a agitator than he than he was in the major leagues like there's all these stories of him with the monarchs where they would be riding on a they'd be on their team bus going from town to town and he they would get to like a gas station and they would go in and use try to use the bathroom at the gas station and the people that working at the gas station would say sorry black people can't use the the facilities here although they probably said it harsher than i just did right and so before jackie joined the team everyone at least on his team they would they would sort of be like upset about that but they didn't see that there was anything they could do and then jackie robinson started saying take the pump out of the tank we'll go get a hundred gallons of gas someplace else but if you're gonna take our money for gas we need to be able to use the bathroom Mm. and one by one stations started letting the team use the bathroom and he was able to change the culture on that team before he was then able to change the culture of (laughs) the entire country and Again, this is why it's so intriguing that so the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers is a guy named Branch Rickey. Yes. And he is the one who is the most instrumental in bringing Jackie Robinson into the major leagues, into playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yep. The reason why he chose Robinson as opposed to any other black player is still kind of up for debate. Right. And there's he sent scouts to watch him play in the Negro Leagues, and the scouts all reported that he was an excellent player, that he was tough. Um, and that they thought that he was one of the he, they thought he could hack it in the major leagues and be able to take the abuse and withstand the abuse he was going to be able to withstand when he integrated baseball because there were better players at the time. Yes, like Roy Campanella, for example, was probably a better player. But Roy Campanella, everyone said, it was too sweet, and they thought that he, you know when the abuse got really rough, he would break down, he wouldn't be able to take it, which would set the movement back. It would make it very difficult for anyone who wanted to come after. And Don Newcomb was also one of the best players. He was a pitcher at the time. And again, similar thing. They didn't think he had the uh, disposition to be able to withstand the abuse he needed to withstand in 1947. And interestingly, with Campanella, who would go on to be a catcher for the Dodgers and I think won three MVPs. He was he did. quite a good player. Yes. Jackie Robinson would disparage Campanella for that sort of milder temperament that he had. Right, exactly. That was... Again, it's one of the sort of paradoxes or ways that Jackie Robinson sort of goes against the narrative that he's often portrayed as is that, you know, he comes up, we think of as a passive resistor. Then when Campanella comes up, he then goes after Campanella for not basically being an agitator enough. Campanella would say things like, we're so lucky to be here. Don't rock the boat. We got to appreciate that they're letting us play. And Jackie Robinson was not really in line with that attitude. And I think part of the reason why we consider why that image of Jackie Robinson as sort of a pure passive resistor, which again, he he was, yeah. and he did not believe pretty much his whole life, he did not believe in violence as a solution for progress. Yeah, right. But the main reason I think why we have that image of him is because he promised Branch Rickey that particularly for the first three years of his career, that he would turn the other cheek. Right. That's the... That's sort of the famous story. It's in the movie. That's one of the things that's in the movie 42 that's actually true is that Branch Rickey has this meeting with Robinson. He tests Robinson by calling. He's calling him every name in the book. He's getting right in his face. He's yelling at him. He's spitting. He's, and he's trying to test him to see if he'll break. And then eventually Jackie Robinson says to him, do you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? And Branch Rickey says, no, I want a player with guts enough not to fight back. Mm-hmm. And that idea, I think, is a really interesting idea. It's certainly an idea that I think has a lot of value <laughs> as a teacher. That's definitely something that I've talked to students about of like, you don't need to freak out everyone time call any time someone calls you a name right. because it's not getting you anything to go fight this kid because now you'll be suspended and your life is set back. But that was what Branch Rickey was looking for. And that's exactly what he got with uh, Jackie Robinson. And then, sorry, this is the one last thing I was going to say. 
that scout, they were, in addition to reporting that Robinson was tough and could play and could hang, he met Rachel. And he said that he heard Rachel talking and she was a college graduate and she seemed really smart. And he apparently said, basically, any man who would choose her as a wife, who would have the sense to pick her, must be, a, you know, a smart guy. The other thing that Branch Rickey and Robinson have in common is that they were both religious Christians. Mm-hmm. I believe both Methodists, actually. Exactly. So that might have also had to do with kind of the connection and, again, why Branch Rickey would choose Robinson over people like Campanella. There's also Satchel Paige, who is one of the greatest yes. uh, player, period, one of the greatest players of all time. Yes, but too uh, old at the time. Josh Gibson famously referred to as the Black Babe Ruth. Yeah. But by the time of the 40s, I think it would also make sense that Gibson's a little bit older. That checks out. And just for the timeline, when Jackie Robinson does break the color line, Mm -hmm. uh, which is on April 15th, 1947, and April 15th is now celebrated throughout Major League Baseball as Jackie Robinson Day, he was 28 years old, which for a Major League player to start off their career is old. Yes, it is. It is younger than me now, which is sort of crazy to think. Like, it is because you you think of all these people obviously as being, you know, they're like. I think of Jackie Robinson as a historical figure. You don't picture like George Washington being like a teenager, <laughs> right? Right. It's, it's crazy to think about. It's honestly unbelievable to think about that he was able to do all of that. He was able to have such a maturity level, such a sense about him, such poise, poise counts, such grace, and and all of that strength at 28. And I'm 29, like you know. Not able to do any of those things. <laughs> 29, you'd still be in your prime, though. I would, yeah, I would think so. I'm 31. It kind of depends. If I was a tennis player, I guess recently tennis yeah. players play later on. But, you know, Sampras, I think, retired at 31. I'd be done. Yeah, I do think. If I were a gymnast, I would be, I mean, just in an old age. <laughs> well, in a gym, yeah, in a gymnast, you'd be, you had three careers. But, I mean, in a gymnast, <laughs> you're 20 years out of your prime. Yeah, but it is weird to think about that he was younger than me now when he uh, when he broke the color barrier. With this responsibility on yes. his shoulders. And the only other thing that I'll say that Branch Rickey might have seen in Robinson that made him a you know, very eligible candidate is the fact that at UCLA, Robinson was used to playing with white players. Right, right. And that, yeah, that was definitely big. The note that we should make, so when Jackie Robinson breaks the color line— he actually is not the first African-American who ever played in the major leagues. There was someone like 60 years before? So there are two things. Okay. First of all, and I'm, I'm not sure of the name of this player, but there was one player who passed as white that was later discovered to technically be black. <laughs> There's a lot of people who have a theory that Babe Ruth was black. Really? Yes. It's an internet theory. You can look and there's you can find pictures of him where he, you can find pictures of him where it could be, you know, that people use as a defense and they yeah. say people don't really know much about his origin and people wanted him to be white because if I mean Babe Ruth you're now going 20 years before Jackie Robinson even. Mm-hmm. So the idea that the Yankees would have a star who was black, they thought would upset people. People didn't want to root for a black guy, so right. they just kind of told everyone he was white oh but there God. are theories out there that babe ruth was black i did not know about that what yes. a few black players did play in the late 1800s probably most famously in 1884 there was a guy named moses nicknamed fleetwood walker yeah. who uh also his brother played later on weldy walker at the same time who played in the newly formed american association we should just say so now in baseball there's the national league and the American League, and they comprised the major leagues. In the late 1800s, early 1900s, there were kind of a bunch of leagues going on, and they would later form the two leagues that we know now. But it still counts as Major League Baseball. Right. And also, please don't think that, like, I'm not mentioning this guy to be like, oh, Jackie Robinson didn't do as much. Yeah, suck it, Jackie. <laughs> no, that is by no means. Uh, I That's do... who I should have picked. I should have picked Fleetwood Robinson and been like, listen, everyone gives Jackie Robinson the credit, but it's 20 years after the Civil War. That was a major moment. I, I only mention it to be like, oh, this guy's been more or less lost to history, yeah. but he had to endure a, a whole lot. He played in 1884, and... Cap Anson, who was a white guy, yeah. was one of the best baseball players of all time. Mm-hmm. If you look at sort of lists of a lot of these advanced statistics, Cap Anson is always just kind of the random guy in the top 10. Also, a pretty awful human being. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So he threatened to have his team sit out an exhibition game if Fleetwood Walker would play. He eventually backed down, but as he backed down, he yelled out the N-word on the field and says it'll never happen again. And then three years later, he makes a successful attempt forcing the Newark Little Giants, who had uh, so that's where Walker played at the time, to sit out. And pretty quickly after that, the minor league votes against allowing new contracts to black players. That's in 1887. That is the only real on-the-books right. 
thing that was preventing black people from being in the major leagues. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's what's known as a gentleman's agreement. Right. Basically understood by the higher-ups that they're not going to be in the leagues. Do you think that you could have played baseball in 1880, like, professionally? Me, personally? I think I, like, I'm not a good baseball player. I played in high school, but, like, I love it. I think in 1880, if you took me now with my current, like, I mean, in my prime, if you took me now... I think I could hack it in 1880s. In the 1880s, but yeah. not when you're 29. I mean, <laughs> yeah, come on. I'm a dinosaur by then. Especially, like, I mean, if I was stealing bases, I feel like yeah. that would like blow their mind. They'd be like, "What? I didn't even realize is this allowed." I still don't think I would be able to do it. No, <laughs> I, I, I don't. I'm a particularly poor athlete, but I mean, I would, I would get into it. I would, yeah. wear, I would have the crazy mustache and the whole thing. I, w- I would be good at coming up with a you know, cool 1880s nickname. The, the nicknames back then are awesome. Even I, the people that Jackie Robinson played with. Sal the Barber Magley is an alt, I mean, <laughs> is a great nickname because he pitched up and in. I mean, that's... A, <laughs> and also, it's not just the nicknames. It's just the regular, the regular Rogers Hornsby. Yes. Rogers with an S at the end. Yes. Uh, Tris Hannes, Speaker. Tris Speaker. Hannes Wagner. Hannes Wagner. Ty, I mean, Ty Cobb, horrible racist, but... Uh, Ty Cobb, awful human <laughs> yes, being. terrible. <laughs> terrible person. But those, I mean, those are just great names. There's something about those names. I feel like nowadays baseball players don't have they don't and athletes in general. And maybe it's just like one of those things where you always glorify the past. Right. But I do feel like the names and the nicknames of athletes today, we don't don't really have the same sort of level. Yeah. The New York Mets have a few yeah. uh, had a few great pitchers. Well, one of them is still around, Jake. Degrom, yeah, like who is, Jake Degrom is a like you know the best baseball player ever in my opinion but he doesn't have a there's no cool there's, there's no cool nickname the yeah. best nickname they came up with noah syndergaard that's another mets pitcher was thor just because yeah. he looks like thor right it, just, it doesn't yeah. it's it's missing that sort of element yeah it's, i mean thor is cool but it's no cool papa bell i mean if you're cool <laughs> pa- like that's just how he was referred to yeah cool papa bell mordehai three finger brown yes. which was because he literally did have three fingers so that was an easy one the greatest baseball greatest name ever Cal McClish. Cal McClish's real name. He was a pitcher in the 1940s, actually. Left Brooklyn the year before Jackie Robinson got there. Cal McClish, also known as Calvin Coolidge, Julius Caesar, Tuscahoma (laughs) McClish. His nickname was Buster. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. Calvin Coolidge, often compared to Julius Caesar. <laughs> um, that, uh, oh, man, that, that would go. Was he any good? Let's see. I, don't, I honestly have no, I, I mean, he had a career ERA of four. So, I don't know, not terrible. Let's see. He was an all-star. An all-star in 1959 for the okay. Cleveland Indians. So, Good for him. Good for Cal, Calvin Coolidge, Julius Caesar, Tuscan, Wait, year was it? 1959. 1959. Yeah. Okay. For Cleveland. I was going to make a – try to make a smooth transition. It's somewhat smooth. Well, that's which around is, when Jackie retired. Which is also – that is around when Jackie retired. Also, again, this is going to sound like me like, like saying Jackie Robinson didn't do as impressive a thing. Not many people know, or maybe they do, that the color barrier – so Jackie Robinson played on the Dodgers who were in the National League. Right. The color barrier in the American League was actually broken less than three months later. Larry Doby. By Larry Doby for the Cleveland Indians. There you go. And it's people don't generally know about Larry Doby except in the pocket of New Jersey where I grew up, which is where Larry Doby's from. So people love to talk about Larry Doby. And you can't have a Jackie Robinson conversation without someone being like, oh, Larry Doby. Don't forget Larry Doby. Also, Cleveland Indians' first team to have a black manager, Frank Robinson, in 1974. Yes. So other than their name, (laughs) (laughs) they're actually one of the more progressive teams in history. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... That really is, you know, the name is horrible, and then, but they're just like, listen, we had Larry Doby, so don't. Yeah. What else do you want from us? All right, we have Larry Doby. Yeah, they're doing all this with these like insanely offensive logos and the whole thing, and yes. the, and the audience doing the you know chop and the, that. Yes, exactly. But, yeah, um, but okay, so that I did just want to mention Moses Fleetwood Walker. So Jackie Robinson is the first African American player in the major leagues uh, in about sixty years. Right. Right. And. There were a lot of things preventing him from being in the league, most notably the fact that the commissioner of baseball, who was actually the first official commissioner of baseball. Another great name, right? Kennesaw Landis. 
I think his nickname was Happy. I think they called him Happy Landis. Oh, okay. Kennesaw Landis was the racist who prevented black people from integrating. Okay. He dies in 1944. The new commissioner is Albert Happy Chandler. Okay, got it. I knew there was a Happy in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah, Happy Chandler. Great name. So Happy Chandler is the commissioner when Jackie Robinson integrates baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, first, Jackie Robinson tried out for the Red Sox before Branch Rickey brought him in for the Dodgers. It is still another... So one question that will never be fully answered is why Branch Rickey brought in Robinson. A related question is, was Branch Rickey a moralist or a capitalist? Or both? This is an interesting question, and I think it, it also is like, does... Well, it's it's this is such an interesting topic, right? Does it matter, first of all, which one he was? That's a great question. And also, I think one of... And I this is like a maybe a comedic bit that's been done by someone, but like... One of the reasons, of course, you could be both. And also, like, racism is just stupid as an idea. Like, it doesn't make sense. Of course, if you're a manager of a baseball team, you'd be like, wait, black people may want to watch the games. So we can either continue to be shitty and keep all the black players off the field and also not have many black fans. Or we can do what is sort of morally right, have black players on the team and then also make more money through getting an entirely new black audience. It's like... The Michael Scott win win win. You should do that. (laughs) You know, you should do that. That's what you should do. Clearly, and Um, from the money standpoint, attendance in Ebbets Field. Ebbets Field is where the Dodgers played. Right, increased four hundred percent in nineteen forty seven. That was Robinson's first year. Yep. Uh, Robinson's first game. There were twenty six thousand six hundred twenty three fans in the uh, in the stadium. Fourteen thousand of them were black. Right, and that's sort of is um, you know this is a whole different podcast, but that is sort of like ideally. People who are like idealists about capitalism would say that like it would share sort of force like that. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A hier- like a hierarchy where like yes, you get all the best players, and that it was of course a diverse group of people, right? And then you get a diverse group of that, um, fans. That the invisible hand yes. of capitalism produces, right? That would yeah, be that the is, argument. That is yeah. the idealist capitalist argument, which of course sure. doesn't really pan out in actual life. But <laughs> in this case, in, in this case, it made sense. From a financial and a moral perspective. And I think the reason why a lot of people feel like Ricky, like Robinson, is, you know, a complex character. Uh, Branch Ricky was a lifelong conservative in terms of his political views. Mm -hmm. He actually supported Barry Goldwater in 1964. I didn't realize that. And Barry Goldwater was famously, you know, kind of one of the forefathers of social conservatism. Yes. That sort of culminated in Ronald Reagan 15 years or 16 years later. Right. So... Branch Rickey as a sort of pure non-racist versus him as a guy who saw a financial opportunity, it's it'll never be fully answered. Right, and we'll, and we'll get there at some point, but Jackie Robinson, also a Republican. Yes. <laughs> we'll get there when we're done with his playing career, but a so, Just to keep going with his playing career yeah. for a little bit, I mean, there are many, many stories of the bigotry that Jackie Robinson faced when he was on the field throughout yeah. his career, particularly during the first year. Yep. There is a famous, basically right away, there were a few Brooklyn Dodgers players who tried to petition to sit out if Robinson was signed. So every team in baseball filled a, um, every team in baseball said that they were going to strike if Robinson was allowed to play. Right. And they, they all said that. The only team that voted a majority to not strike was, I believe, the Pittsburgh Pirates. And for them, it was 13 12. So every other team voted to strike. And then. Eventually, when you know push came to shove, no one actually did it. But every team was clearly against him, and he got off to a bad start in 1947. Yep. And then, um, yes, several players, several players said that they either demanded trades or said that they wouldn't play. And some of them eventually recanted, especially when they realized that Jackie was an excellent baseball player, which, you know, is sort of also forgotten that he's a tremendous baseball player just on his own merits, forgetting all the adversity he was going through. And when Robinson eventually made the Hall of Fame after his career, he said, I want to be in the Hall of Fame purely for my baseball right. talent as opposed, or, or my baseball career as opposed to the fact that I broke the color barrier. Right. And if you look at his statistics, which I won't go into details of it just in case people don't exactly know how baseball statistics work, but put pretty simply... He was Rookie of the Year in 1947. Yeah, and they, and they invented the Rookie of the Year category for him, which is interesting. Because I feel like, like it is one of those things where nowadays I feel like we're, we would say we're all like so sensitive. If a new player integrated a sport, right? There's this new gay player in football, Nassib, I think is his last name. Mm-hmm. If they invented a category for this guy and he yeah. won, <laughs> after next year and he wins the award, everyone would be like, what are we doing here? You know, how do you... 
All right, we created a category for him. That doesn't right. make sense. Well, but- it'd be pretty bad if the award was best gay player. <laughs> <laughs> that would <laughs> that would be unbelievable. Um, but they literally then people would have a right to be like, I think it was just for him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this is a bit much here. Um, but yeah, they invent this. They invent rookie of the year. Yeah. He wins it in 1947, and was a career three thirteen hitter, I believe. He was a. I got the baseball reference right here. If you got me. this right, let's see. Hit me. Batting average. Do they list on they the must- bottom? It's in the the gray box on the bottom. I said three thirteen. Damn, good call. There we go. Which is ridiculous. Which okay. is r- super high. I would say, judged by in the way that baseball has changed, players like Jackie Robinson are slightly less valuable today. He got caught stealing a little much. True. Um, Although probably I, my favorite stat with Jackie Robinson stole home nineteen times. Yes. And probably the most iconic image of him on a baseball field is him stealing home in the World Series so against want, the Yankees. So I want to talk about this. Yeah. I can talk about this. Yeah. So there's two things. I would like to think, one, that my, my love and admiration for Jackie Robinson has been made clear at this point in the podcast. Yeah. On that steal, there's two things about it. The first is remarkably stupid to steal in that situation. Well, to steal home in general is, for, for those of you who don't know yeah. baseball too well, is a ridiculous thing to do. Yes. It's hard <laughs> enough to steal second, which is right. on the polar opposite uh, part of the infield. Yes. To steal home just when the pitcher pitched and the catcher doesn't even have <laughs> to throw is nowadays unheard of. It's nearly impossible to do. But so, but in this game, it's the it's World Series, 19, it's 1955 World Series. Mm. It's game one. Mm. They're playing the Yankees. Mm. It's like the seventh or eighth inning. I believe Whitey Ford, Hall of Fame pitcher, Whitey yeah, Ford is pitching, of the board. and he's pitching to Yogi Berra, Hall of Fame catcher. Yes. Yeah. And it's a two-run game. And he's the only runner on base. So it's a two-run game. So he's the tying run is at the play in the late innings of a World Series game. And he risks stealing home to make it a one-run game. But if he's out, the inning's over, and then they don't have the tying run at the plate. So that's already crazy. I'm going to counter that point with, it's awesome, though. It's, <laughs> it's still really cool. It's the coolest play ever, but I would also say this. Watch the replay of that. Folks at home, YouTube it. Jackie Robinson steals home in the World Series. He's out by so much. Oh, come it on. It is not. It's not close. This is blasphemy. <laughs> it's, is... Really, it's really not close at all. If it was today's game with replay, I mean... They would, he's out by like a, a startling amount where you're like, I can't believe that he was called safe in this situation. There are a few iconic moments in baseball that have been sort of rebutted later on. Well, clearly the fact that Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire broke right. the home run record. They had steroids. Same right. thing with Barry Bonds. Right. Also, the shot heard around the world. Bobby okay. Thompson hitting the game-winning home run for the New York Giants right. against... The Brooklyn Dodgers. That's right, 1951. There not there reports that there was someone kind of cheating in the outfield? I think that there are reports that he was um, tipping pitches. Tipping pitches, That yeah. he was either tipping pitches or that somehow he knew what pitch was going to come. But I don't—that's a little hazier. Got it. Yeah, that's a little hazier. But Also with the shot heard around the world, it was against the Dodgers with Jackie Robinson. There's a famous photograph of Jackie Robinson looking at home plate as Bobby Thompson crossed the base, uh, yeah. as, uh, making sure that Thompson touched home. That's right. The competitor straight to the end. Everyone else jogged off the field. Jackie waited on, needed to make sure. So... We've, okay, so we've talked about Jackie Robinson as a great player in general. He yes. did win the National League MVP mm-hmm. uh, during his third year, yep. and he was almost every year that he played got MVP votes. Yes. The only argument against him in terms of making it to the Hall of Fame as a pure baseball player that I can see is just that his career was somewhat short. Right. Well, but, that's what happens when you don't start till you're uh, 28. Of course. But he was 16th in the voting in MVP in his final year in 1956. So yeah. the guy was great till the end. Yes. And by the way, sorry, 16th voting in the MVP is good. Right, exactly. Because there are a lot of players. There are a lot of players who did not. For example, I didn't receive any MVP votes last season in the major leagues. No, not one. <laughs> Zero. But again, 29. 29. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's my prime. In terms of people that stuck up for Jackie Robinson at points, Leo DeRocher, who was... Sort of the manager of the Dodgers. <laughs> this is an unbelievable story. That Leo DeRocher was the manager of the Dodgers leading up to 1947. Yeah. As is sort of being made clear that, and Leo DeRocher is a really apparently a, a strong leader, people a really well respected figure, and would have been a great manager to sort of help Jackie through his first season. Mm. The commissioner of baseball, who is maybe maybe a little you know people are worried about what's going to happen here with Jackie Robinson suspends Leo DeRocher just before the start of 1947 for the whole season for adultery. 
<laughs> Leo DeRocher cheating on his wife and then suspended from baseball for a year for like conduct unbecoming to the league. Wow. Okay, so there's an interim manager. However, DeRocher still does have some influence. Right. And he says a famous quote, I do not care if the guy is yellow or black or if he has stripes like a fucking zebra. I'm the manager of this team and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich. And if any of you cannot use the money, I will see that you are all traded. That's amazing. And once again, just the combination of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier as both a progressive uh, moral argument, but also the money here right. is huge. And that's one of the arguments that Branch Rickey used to the players who were upset, is he was like, we win the World Series. I don't forget what the exact dollar amount is, but each player gets a share of winnings for winning the World Series, some many thousands of dollars. And he was like, he can help you get that amount of money. So you can either have this amazing player play for someone else <laughs> right. and hurt your chances of getting that amount of money, or... Play with him and get over yourself. Another and, kind of yeah. thing that Ricky would say would be a kind of indirect positive. So basically, one of the most famous racist incidents towards Robinson during his first year is that the Phillies manager, this guy named Ben Chapman, right. starts calling him racial slurs on the right. on the field and says famously, go back to the cotton fields. Right. Soon after that, Ricky basically says, this united totally. the team. And there was it was a three game series. This is this is a major part of that movie Forty Two, um, which I do want to dive into in a little bit. But um, major part of the movie Forty Two. But yeah, Ben Chapman was standing basically out of the dugout, screaming at Robinson for a three game series. Jackie had gotten on, gotten off to a bad start, so he's already playing poorly. He's already nervous about getting benched. He's already nervous about not making it. And then Ben Chapman comes out and is you know every racial slur in the book. The team is joining him, and. Jackie almost breaks down at this moment. Then, around the third game of the series, Eddie Stanky on the Dodgers had had it. And he runs over and gets in Chapman's face and basically said, you know he can't fight back. Stop yelling at a guy who can't fight back. Right. Um, and calls him like a redneck asshole and all this stuff. And that sort of, that really did unite the team. Jackie, I think, got some hits in that third game. And that really turned his 1947 season around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like we've been naming a few positive people, a few negative people as we go along. Ben right. Chapman definitely in the uh, not great. Yeah, column. I believe it's Eddie Stanky though in, in the in the ally column for going over there and really. The other one who is famously in the ally column is Pee Wee Reese. Yes, who is Jackie Robinson's teammate for most of his career. Reese, yes. maybe during a game, put his arm around Jackie Robinson's shoulder. Yep. It is reported that it was on May 13th, 1947, so that would be pretty early in Robinson's career. That's yes. only is basically still within his first month of yep. playing. And that after, uh, again, hearing racial slurs and, and all sorts of you know awful things, Reese puts his arm around Robinson as a symbolic act. Right. And that was in Cincinnati, I believe, which is right on the border of Kentucky. That's where Pee Wee Reese grew up. And Pee Wee Reese was the best player on the Dodgers for the years leading up to 1947. He was the captain of the team, the shortstop, um, and people were sort of mad that they thought Jackie was going to take his position because he was a better player. And, and Pee Wee Reese was also a Southerner, so a lot of people sort of assumed that he would be leading the fight against Jackie. Right. But, and Reese famously said, like, I didn't know any black people right. for most of my life. Right. And, but um, Reese and Robinson become very good friends, and then there is this whole story of Reese coming to the coming to Jackie's side in this game in 1947 and putting his arm around him and that's weird because there's none of the press at the time reported this which is very strange but in general that was true the press was weird when it came to reporting Jackie Robinson's right. first season they didn't mention him as much, nearly as often as you would think. In the day after his debut, he was not mentioned in the first few paragraphs of Arthur Daly's New York Times column <laughs> about the game. He wasn't in the headline. Later on in the column, uh, this guy Daly said, the muscular Negro minds his own business and shrewdly makes no effort to push himself. He speaks quietly and intelligently when spoken to and already has made a strong impression. And that's about it <laughs> for a guy breaking the color barrier. Yeah, for, yes, which is so... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's on the one hand, and this is one of these interesting questions, on the one hand, I mean, that's obviously really insulting to be like, he makes no effort to get better because he's a tremendous player, obje objectively speaking. Okay. But it's also one of those things of, do you want the articles to be like, well, he overcame adversity and went one for four and it was great and everyone cheered this at bat, or do you want him to be treated just like another ball player? Right. That's sort of that, it's, there's a spectrum there. Right. And 
it's a question of where exactly you land on it. Right. But that's to, but Jackie certainly also varied at different points where he wanted to be. Right. So the only reason why I mentioned is to point out that the it, the fact that the Reese incident is a little bit fuzzy right. kind of is in line with in general how the press covered the 1947 season. Right, and that is definitely a story. It's so it's it's interesting that is mentioned in I believe it's mentioned in Jackie's autobiography. Mm-hmm. It's mentioned in the last chapter of The yes. Boys of Summer. Both of them claimed that it was true. Right. Yes. And so people claim it was true. There's statues of this moment. Yes. Um, but Outside the Brooklyn Cyclones yeah. Stadium, which exactly. is a minor league team that is now in Brooklyn. Which is a tremendous. That's a great way to sit, uh, spend a day, by the way. Coney Island, you see a game with the Cyclones. That's the best. And we could also say the Brooklyn Cyclones is a minor league team for the New York Mets. Yes. The Mets have, in general, really taken on the that they are the inheritors of Jackie Robinson's legacy. Totally. There is the Jackie Robinson rotunda at City Field for the Mets. Yes. It's a weird thing because Jackie Robinson played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. The Brooklyn Dodgers moved to Los Angeles. Right. So there is no more Brooklyn Dodgers. Right. The Mets became the only New York National League team. Right. So which team sort of takes on his legacy is... Up for debate. Right. Whether, yeah, it would be the Los Angeles Dodgers or the New York Mets or... Yeah, it's an interesting question. And the Mets owners for, until recently, were huge Brooklyn Dodger fans growing up, which mm-hmm. is why that they decided to dedicate such a, make such an impact or make such a strong decision to really, as you said, claim the, you know, the, the rights to Jackie Robinson's right, legacy. Right, right, yeah. Um, and they modeled City Field after Ebbets Field. And, um, and yeah, and there was a joke. The Mets had terrible ownership until recently. And so there was a joke I remember seeing on Twitter that the Mets are the Wilpons' third favorite baseball team behind the Brooklyn Dodgers and their high school team that Sandy Koufax was on. Okay. I just want to talk quickly because we mentioned Leo DeRocher and we mentioned the Mets sort of claiming that legacy. I am a Mets fan. Um, and my dad was a I'm, – I'm a Mets fan, a huge Mets fan, as are you. Sam, yep. Because um, my dad, who grew up in this time, saw Jackie Robinson play – he was a huge Giants fan, a New York Giants fan. Right. The Giants reason, also played in New yeah. York at the time. Willie Mays was their most famous player. Yep. And they moved to San Francisco while at, in the same year that the Dodgers right. moved to Los Angeles. And the reason my dad was a Giants fan is because my grandfather, who was not into sports, was, watching, was, was trying to get into baseball in the, uh, the late 40s or early 50s and watched a game, and Leo DeRocher was the manager and that knew about Leo DeRocher. And so my dad said, like, you know, who are we a fan of? And my grandfather was like, oh, well, we're Giants fans because we like Leo DeRocher because Leo DeRocher is Jewish. Mm. Um, and so that's what happened. My dad became a Giants fan and then eventually a Met fan. This is my story my whole life and my dad's story my whole life. Right. Like about five years ago, we learned Leo DeRocher, not Jewish. <laughs> he just has, he has the stereotypical features of a Jewish person. So people just thought he was Jewish. What I also find fascinating about this story is that I don't know the exact time period that this would have happened. Would, right. Would this be 50s or 60s? It'd be like early 50s. Early 50s. Okay. Right. Because I was going to say, if you're going for Jewish baseball figures, right. you should be a Dodgers fan. You would think. Because of Sandy Koufax. Right. I guess but Sandy, that's not until the 60s. Exactly. Um, but yeah, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm a Mets fan as opposed to anything else is because Leo DeRocher looks Jewish. <laughs> Yeah, that's how Wait. that story could have easily been my family story too. Yeah. It wasn't, but that's I, I completely relate to it. And it um it's also it's much better that way than the other way. If he was like, well, we like this team because Leo Drescher is like, we hate the Giants because Leo Drescher is Jewish, so oh. we go the other way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that right, <laughs> that would be that would definitely be worse. Also, Jewish baseball player Hank Greenberg, yes. who played around the same time as Jackie Robinson. Yes. Greenberg also experienced a lot of anti-Semitism. Right. Was also famously nice to Jackie Robinson, and uh, on the field would like they, they would kind of say nice things to each other right so uh just to get to the end of robinson's baseball career he retires in 1957 and we'll talk i want to talk a little bit about his politics and about how he acted just sort of on a social cultural causes level Mm -hmm. but just to briefly go through the end of his life from 1957 to 1964 he was the vice president of personnel at chock full of nuts that's why i picked him because i'm really in a chock full of nuts (laughs) and i was like 
And then I, I learned about all the baseball stuff later on. Yeah. I was just like, who's you know who's making this coffee? Yeah, I think it was that, and also the fact that your father uh, <laughs> thought that he was Jewish, Jackie <laughs> Robinson. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I mean, this whole the research I've been doing for this podcast is really blowing my mind. <laughs> Um, so he was, so he had a very high position at Chock Full of Nuts. And just to fast forward on to the end of his life, Jackie Robinson was very, very sick in the last years of his life. He had diabetes, which he had suffered from for a long time. He was going blind. He had heart disease. Yep. And he died in 1972 at the age of 53 from a heart attack. Right. And, and tragically young. And even when you see pictures of him towards the end of his life, I mean, he's in his early 50s mm. and he looks he I mean he looks like he's in rough shape and honestly it's a combination of diabetes but you would also have to assume that a living a life of facing that much adversity right. every single day just weighs on a person in the way that yeah. stress can just build up over time no I mean, doubt yeah so yeah i mean and his, but his wife Rachel still alive as yeah. we mentioned earlier so Jackie Robinson was going to be a cultural figure and a symbol of progress in the country no matter what just by just by putting on the uniform and yep. playing in the major leagues in terms of his activism it's also confusing in a lot of ways or at least not uh it's not a straight line it's not what you would predict certainly when you read about Jackie Robinson you you sort of and I feel like we all do as sports fans and even as people who just know about him from American history you sort of think of him and you, you sort of have an idea of, of what he did after baseball in your head. Mm. But then when you actually read about what he actually did, it's very different. So in 1949, this would be during Robinson's uh, third year in the league, the United States House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities, which was basically trying to crack down on communists in the early years of the Cold War, was looking to basically go after a black entertainer, very, very famous entertainer, singer, actor, Paul Robeson. Yep. And Paul Robeson said in a speech in Paris that black people would not fight in a war against the USSR. That basically, he, he sympathized with the USSR and said that black people would not fight if it came to an actual war. The House on Un-American Activities went after him, and they wanted Jackie Robinson, who would be the other, probably those two would be the two most famous African Americans in America at that time. Right. They wanted to pit them against each other. And Robinson, with Branch Rickey's urging, right. does go to the hearing. And he says, quote, that Robeson has a right to his personal views. And if he wants to sound silly when he expresses them in public, that is his business and not mine. He's still a famous ex-athlete and a great singer and actor. The other thing that I should mention is that Robeson was kind of always a big supporter of integration in baseball and even helped pave the way for Robinson to to break the color barrier. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that Jackie did that. And he was praised in the press. He got maybe the most positive press coverage for that, more so than even anything he did on the playing field. I mean, there were whole essays, say, you know, um, praising him and saying that he was, you know, a true patriot and American hero for um, testifying there. And he did it because Branch Rickey asked him to. And he said later on that if Branch Rickey, at that time in his life, asked him to jump off the Brooklyn Bridge, he would have done that too. He said he had a couple fathers in his life, Branch Rickey being one of them. And... It's again that it's again a decision that he made over and over with political decisions to sort of not be an ideologue to to sort of just pick a group and stick with it, but he really was an individual in every choice he made, and that certainly cost him being remembered in the same way that we remember someone like Muhammad Ali now, hmm. who Muhammad Ali, as I was walking here today, there's a big poster of him. There's I mean he's everywhere, and Jackie Robinson is sort of not. He's almost, I don't want to say forgotten, but he certainly is not remembered as fondly as he, you might think that he would be because of some of these political decisions he made. Right. And the Robeson thing we should say, he regretted later on in his life. Right. And there were a few decisions when it comes to politics and, and cultural issues that he regretted. Yep. The most famous one probably being that in 1960, he supported Richard Nixon when he ran for president against John F. Kennedy. Right. And so here what happens is he meets, he's... In 1960, he's one of the most famous people in America. Yep. Right? Hugely influential. 1960, again, still rather early in the civil rights movement. I think, I forget exactly when Rosa Parks... Rosa Parks would be a little bit earlier, but certainly the beginning years. It's before right. the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the right. Voting Rights Act of 1965, and before the, uh, you know, I, the March on Washington, 1963. So, so we're getting there. Right. But, yeah. but he's still super, he's one of the most influential people. Right. And so he meets with... And this is where, I, if I was alive, I, I would like to think I surely would have voted for a JFK. But 
when you hear Jackie's, um, when you hear his reasoning, hmm. <laughs> it sort of checks out. He meets with Nixon and he meets with Kennedy, right? Hmm. And he says, I talked to Nixon and I, be- and I believed what Richard Nixon told me, which is that he was going to, you know, he was going to fight for black people. And he sort of did have that m- perhaps more like idealist capitalist approach. And Jackie maybe bought into that as well. And then Jackie meets with JFK and he said JFK wouldn't look him in the eye hmm. and said to him, I grew up in Massachusetts. I don't know many black people. So basically, like, tell me what that's about. Tell me what that's all about. And Jackie Robinson said to him, you've been in Congress for 13 years or whatever. It's, that seems like it's your job. And JFK had nothing to say to that. And so he meets with both of them. He's genuinely trusted Nixon. And that's how he ended up getting his support. Although he got a little... he And then he, I believe he quit chock full of nuts to campaign for Nixon full-time. The other thing that I'll say that probably made him skeptical of Kennedy is that Kennedy's running mate was Lyndon Johnson, who would end up being a champion for civil rights when he became president. But African-Americans were very skeptical of this guy from Texas. Of course. Who had no previous record, really, of caring about African-American rights. Yeah, so it was very... very, It's it's an odd decision when you take it on its face, but when you read about what he said, I don't know that I would... You know, you meet with someone who says he doesn't know anything about black people and won't look you in the eye. I don't know that I trust that guy either. He eventually does like JFK in the early 60s once JFK is already president. The thing that really turns him off from the Republican Party is 1964 when Barry Goldwater gets the nomination. That was who we mentioned before, Branch Rickey supported. Right. And he saw Goldwater as, well, first of all, a guy who was against the Civil Rights Act uh, in that was passed in 1964. He saw Goldwater as a real enemy, and he even went so far as to say that when Goldwater was nominated, he uh, felt like he knew better what it would be like to be a Jew in Nazi Germany. Yeah, so in, he was, the politician he's probably most closely aligned with is Nelson Rockefeller, right? He was the governor of New York, and Jackie was a close advocate of him. He would help him sort of pitch. He would help him make speeches for him. He was basically in a uh, go-between between the black community and Nelson Rockefeller, right. right? And so he supported Nelson Rockefeller in his 1964 run. And then when Nelson Rockefeller loses to Barry Goldwater, he says, okay, I'll still go to the convention. And at the convention, he said, I can't vote for this person. And so he actually switched and in 1964, campaigned... Um, for LBJ and said that basically any if you're not voting for LBJ, you, just, you might as well throw your vote away. You know what? No black person should vote for Barry Goldwater. And yeah, he sort of went the other way and reversed from his position of voting for Nixon earlier. And to talk, he ends up supporting Hubert Humphrey in the 1968 election uh, against Richard Nixon mm-hmm. and who uh, Hubert Humphrey would be the Democrat. Right. In terms of his relationship with the major black leaders of the time, he and Martin Luther King are very good friends Mm -hmm. and collaborate on a lot of different sort of activist events. Right. He and Malcolm X do not get along. Right. So when Malcolm X was in prison, it was when Jackie Robinson broke the color line, right? In 1947. And at the time, Malcolm X said, I'm the biggest, you won't find a bigger Jackie Robinson fan than me. He was obsessed with making sure that Jackie did well. And for a long time in speeches, Jackie Robinson would literally quote Malcolm X saying something like, you know, I don't just want to sit at lunch counters. I want to own the cup. I want to own the saucer. I want to own the coffee. I want to own the building. It was something like that. And Jackie Robinson's career being one of the heads of Chock Full of Nuts is sort of a, you know, he's living the example of promoting strong uh, black business and, and, you know, excelling in the business world. Exactly. And then so that was his, he was literally quoting Malcolm X. There was events where him and Malcolm X spoke together and there was a, there was an event, I believe, I forget the exact year, but there was an event in Harlem where both uh, was hosted by Jackie Robinson and Malcolm X was like the star speaker. And the crowd at this time, sort of the more militant crowds, had started to sour on Jackie Robinson. They would mock him. His, he has a very high-pitched voice. Mm-hmm. And people would mock his voice. They would apparently toss baseballs over the stage and stuff when he was because they, they thought that he wasn't militant enough. And then when... Jackie went up to sort of close out the event. They ch- uh, chanted, we want Malcolm over him. And then Malcolm X actually did come back up and was gracious enough to settle the crowd down for Jackie. But then later on, him and Malcolm X were very much at odds. And one of the things that Malcolm X would throw in Jackie Robinson's face was the Paul Robeson hearing. Right. So that was kind of seen as a mark on Jackie Robinson's legacy. And essentially, Malcolm X thought of Jackie Robinson or would call him a Uncle Tom, yep. more or less. Yeah. 
So later on, after Malcolm X is assassinated, Jackie Robinson does have nice things to say about Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. Going back to MLK, the one main thing that Martin Luther King and Jackie Robinson disagree on is the Vietnam War. Right. Well, that's probably... Well, MLK essentially took the position, right, that any black person going to fight in the war is basically being bamboozled, being swindled, being taken advantage of by some white imperialist ideology. Jackie Robinson... His son fought in Vietnam, so yep. he probably didn't take too kindly to that. And I think he just, again, was probably more of an individualist in saying, like, don't tell everyone who, don't tell every black person who feels like it's their patriotic duty to fight in this war that they're being bamboozled, swindled, and conned, which maybe they were, but, yeah. but that was certainly n not something that Jackie took kindly to. Yeah, it hit him on a personal level, yeah. of course. Just to kind of go over Jackie Robinson's, you know, just objective activist work and charitable works. Yep. He, again, considered his business career to be advancing the cause of black people in commerce and industry. He chaired the NAACP's Million Dollar Freedom Fund Drive in 1957 and served on the organization's board until 1967. In 1964, he helped found with Harlem businessman Dunbar McLaurin Freedom National Bank, a black-owned and operated commercial bank based in Harlem. Uh, he served as the bank's first chairman as well. In 1970, Robinson established the Jackie Robinson Construction Company to build housing for low-income families. This is just a few of the acts that he took, particularly after his career, that were, you know, undeniably trying, at least, yes. to uh, improve the conditions of black people. Absolutely. And the Freedom National Bank went on to become, it was the most successful bank, the most successful black bank of all time, at least for a time period. And again, with the NAACP, he was sort of struck a very individual path where he would, on the one hand, rail against the NAACP for not listening to enough new black voices and then eventually distance himself from the NAACP for being too militant right. in his view. So again, just very, very much an individual. And he writes an autobiography towards the very end of his life. And in the autobiography, there is a famous quote, which is that he basically says, I cannot stand and sing the anthem. I cannot salute the flag. I know that I am a black man in a white world. Yep. Which is such an interest. That's the first line of the book, I believe. And that is such an interesting thing to say, especially given the sort of anthem controversies we've had here, because how many people, and this is what, this is, I could do a whole nother episode about this, but how many people love to talk about Jackie Robinson and love to talk about how it'll judge people on the content of their character and MLK. They love to quote that line. But then when Colin Kaepernick does what Jackie Robinson also says he would have done, unacceptable, ban him from the league, right? I mean, so it's a question of, and this is sort of, this is the thing that I have such an appreciation of with Jackie Robinson, right? He had an understanding that I feel like is now gone, that progress is inherently difficult. It's inherently going to be problematic, and there will inherently be people that will not agree with what you're doing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be progress, right? So, like, you need to ruffle feathers. You need to upset people. You need to – but then you also be, need to be able to deal with the backlash that comes from doing that. And he was sort of the master at that, and it's also the reason that people eventually hated him, <laughs> you know, including black people, including many white people who also – Hated. Yeah, I mean, and during his lifetime, he was kind of a man without a home. Right. Yeah. In, in a lot of ways, because he didn't fully fit any sort of narrative. Right. Although he did have a home, a literal home. Do you know who he lived with for a time being? No. He lived with a very famous singer. White or black? Um, white. White singer. Yes. Carly Simon. What? Him and Carly <laughs> Simon lived together. You heard it here first, folks. Jackie Robinson is who the song You're So Vain <laughs> is about. So yeah, they lived, they because what happened was Jackie Robinson was looking with him and Rachel were looking for a home together. Yeah, it was typical of the time where they would basically all their financials obviously checked out. I mean, he's a professional baseball player, so he was doing all right for himself. And but no, you know, no real estate agent wanted to show them any any like fancy homes because it would drive prices down for everyone in the neighborhood. And Carly Simon's mother who was, I believe, this is, I'm pretty sure I have all these details correct. Carly Simon is part of the Simon & Schuster publishing family, Okay. right? Carly Simon's mother was somehow involved in the real estate world, heard about this, and said, like, that's absurd. I will help you get out home. And in the meantime, you can stay here. So for a short amount of time, Jackie Robinson and Carly Simon lived in the same house. I never knew that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but wow. Yeah. I, yeah. Fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to kind of wrap up, again, 
Jackie Robinson, at the end of his life, one of the causes that he was very adamant about was that there should be more black people in baseball management, managers, GMs, and all that stuff. Yep. Unfortunately, he died two years before Frank Robinson became the first black coach in 1974 for the Cleveland Indians. And just to give you an idea of how, how much Jackie Robinson loved speaking the truth, being an individual, and it was okay upsetting people, even allies, when he was – his last public appearance is – I forget. You, do you have the date of his last the day he threw at the first pitch at the World Series? 19, October 15th, 1972. So that's 1972, and they basically wanted to bring him back. And he said, you can bring me back, but if you want to ask me to make a speech, I'm going to say what's on my mind. And he closes his speech by saying, basically, I'm happy, but I'd be a lot happier when I look over at third base and see a black manager coaching a team. Yeah. And, I mean, honestly, to say like to say something so... That's not even that provocative, but it certainly is probably it's an injection of politics into sports, Mm -hmm. which I feel like happens less and less now, because even when you get into politics a little bit, it's like it becomes like a big deal. But to show up at the World Series and make that your sort of walk off line is just it takes guts. Yeah. And he had he had nothing if not the most guts of anyone, any athlete ever. Yeah. And I think, yeah, you mentioned politics in sports nowadays. You see it less in baseball. I mean, it comes every once in a while, but I really feel like the NFL and the NBA is really where politics and sports have mixed the most over the past decade or so. Yes, I certainly agree with that. But what I would also say is I feel like, and this is sort of what I think is changing culturally, it seems like everybody now wants to be someone who's seen as a progressive, wants to be someone who is moving towards progressive causes, but is often not willing to actually sacrifice and actually take a stance that is unpopular. Mm-hmm. I feel like nowadays what happens is like the NBA wants to have players, the, you know, the NBA says, the NBA players say, we want to wear Black Lives Matter on our jerseys. Right. And so they do that, but like, what does that even, what does that actually accomplish other than making somebody seem like they're doing something progressive? In my opinion, right? Maybe that's just me. Or even the best example of this is. And maybe I'm, there's a chance that I have some of the details wrong here. So if I do, I apologize, which is what I have to, whenever a, a white male speaks about a racial issue, I feel like if you preface it with that, no one can get too mad. Please. So there's a chance I'm wrong. But there was a controversy about seven years ago with Donald Sterling, the manager of the Clippers. Yep. Who it turned out he was, all these racist things he'd said on the phone and he hated Magic Johnson because he was yeah, black yeah, yeah. and his age. All these terrible things he said, right? The Clippers have a playoff game that night. There's an, you could make an argument they should boycott the game, they should refuse to play, they should do any of those things. Instead, they come out and they like turn their warm-ups around and put their warm-ups on inside out or they take their warm-ups off or something. And then they just play the game. There's nothing really. They eventually get Donald Sterling kicked out of the, the league. But it's like... And then they make a whole documentary about how they, were, they really took a stand. They produced it themselves. Mm-hmm. The players did. But it's like, to me, I don't... Maybe I'm missing something here. But I don't see what movement that actually moves forward what objective of any particular community that moves forward other than clippers fans by getting them a better owner so you see it basically as purely symbolic I mean, it is that seems the idea? to be symbolic and it seems to be to go back to what i was saying before it seems to be everyone wants to take a stance as long as they're okay knowing that that stance is actually a popular one so would you say colin kaepernick is an exception he's the only one he's right. the only one and he's the closest thing we have to jackie robinson now is that and maybe eric rhodes who i think knelt with colin but colin kaepernick took a knee they asked him why. He said, you know, he did about police brutality. Sure. He never made it about hating America, which is what people said that he was protesting. And he was essentially blackballed from the NFL. He's lost millions of dollars as a result of this. But he did, he did take a stand. He did certainly move a movement forward. Nowadays, when you go to sporting events, you will often see people sitting down and not getting up during the anthem. He is again someone who, in my opinion, has actually made some amount of progress because he was willing to deal an actual risk. Right. I think it's just so... Comp- I, I mean, I, I agree with you in a lot of ways, and I disagree with you in some others. I think that, first of all, I think that this idea of like symbolic progress is always gray. How much something is symbolic, how much something is... Yeah. Uh, is is practical, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, removing, uh, you know, Aunt Jemima or or something, you know, something right. along those lines. Um, I will say that I guess 
it's hard to tell who's going to support something because they actually believe in progress and who's going to support something just to either save their own ass or just because they go wherever the wind blows. Totally. And I think I agree. And that's like what I feel now when I see a commercial with like Kia will be like, oh, Black Lives Matter here at Kia. But like, right. what is that? You were, all that's doing is trying to co-opt a movement so you can sell more cars, mm-hmm. which I feel like is partially what sometimes sports have sort of morphed into a little bit, which worries me is like you're co-opting a movement to get fans, but you're not actually, I don't know, give, make all the tickets free to black people for a month. Do that. That's something. Yeah. <laughs> that's at least, a, that's a move. I don't know. It's at least something that would be, um, that could be positive. But I guess the thing I would say is there's been a lot more attention from the NBA, which has been awesome about getting people to vote getting people, um, making sure that people know how to register to vote, getting people to um, getting people to speak up. And that is something that is certainly in line with Jackie Robinson's uh, legacy. Because he, I believe, basically said businesses and the ballot box is the two places that we need to win. And so that's definitely a positive thing that's come out of that. So I think I know the answer to this question, but yeah. I do always ask it. Why did you choose Jackie Robinson? So I picked Jackie Robinson for a lot of reasons. The first reason, honestly, is because I've always loved Jackie Robinson from when I was a kid. Reason being because I played baseball, played second base, Jackie Robinson, second baseman. And I couldn't hit my whole life. I could never really hit, except in 1880 when I would have destroyed. Right. Um, But I remember hearing a quote from Rachel Robinson to Jackie and saying basically like – it's a shame you can't – when he was in a slump, she said, it's a shame you can't steal first base because he was really fast. And I was fast. So I remember thinking like, well, that's fun. Like he's a fast second baseman who really just wants to be able to get on base, but he can't hit. Right. So I remember always sort of liking that. Then um, I do sort of have a sense of that um, – I do sort of yearn for – in the same way that like some people yearn to be like – some Italian people from New Jersey where I grew up yearn to be like part of the Sopranos or Goodfellas. Right. I yearn to be like – in Brooklyn in like the 1940s and 50s, like we're praying for Gil Hodges and putting up the scores. So that whole era is fascinating to me. Um, and then I love the I, – I, it's, it's that idea that we talked about just now that he was truly a courageous man and truly an, an individual, not an ideologue, and showed so much grace and courage – and also won the damn MVP. <laughs> I mean, what else do you want? I mean, right. to deal with to deal with all of the stuff, all the adversity he had to go through, and to win the Rookie of the Year, win the MVP, and also, by the way, do it all not wearing a batting helmet, which is the craziest thing of all time. <laughs> yeah. He was getting thrown out every day not wearing a batting helmet. I mean, think of how much courage that takes. I was scared to face 60 mile an hour pitching with a batting helmet. He's facing 90 miles an hour, no batting helmet. Well, I don't know if it's 90 miles per <laughs> Again, not taken <laughs> away. Not taken away. <laughs> I don't, uh, you heard it here, folks. You heard it here first. Um, well, Brian Elbert, thank you so much for being on. And uh, you have a podcast that, can you describe it a little bit? I do. So I have a podcast called um, What Do You Teach? This is a podcast. I'm a teacher. I'm looking at the camera right now talking <laughs> to you. Um, it's a podcast called What Do You Teach? And it's a podcast where, where I sit down with other teachers and academics in the field. And basically what we talk about is... There's a lot of amazing ideas in academia about what education could be. I've been a public school teacher in New York City for six years. There's a lot, the, the gap between what I actually see in classrooms versus these ideals feels like a wide chasm at times. So it's basically a question of, it's basically discussions about how can teachers like myself who aspire to these ideals bridge that gap between like what we want to be seeing in classrooms and what's actually happening. And I hope that it's kind of funny as well. Awesome. Uh, Check out the podcast, and uh, thank you so much for being on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.